Hello, this is Ben Horton from the Undercurrents podcast. You're probably wondering why we have an extra episode for you uh, this week. It's actually a very exciting new series that we're going to be featuring across the whole of 2022. We've got six parts in this series, and it's been put together by the team that run the International Affairs Journal at Chatham House, which is our leading academic publication, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. To mark that, the team have been doing some digging into the archive, which features some really fascinating contributions from politicians, policymakers, influencers going down through the decades, and they've discovered some really, really interesting stuff. This first episode is going to feature a conversation about how the journal has covered the issue of UK foreign policy over this period. There'll be five more instalments in the series later this year, but we'll keep you posted on when those are ready. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to this Undercurrents mini-series from the International Affairs Journal team. International Affairs is the journal of Chatham House, publishing academically rigorous and policy-relevant research from across international relations. The journal is celebrating its centenary this year, To celebrate this, we are publishing six archive collections that bring together voices from across the past century to explore issues that continue to impact our lives. I'm Isabel Matreja. I'm the Marketing Manager for International Affairs. And I'm Christina Chortel. I'm the Managing Editor of International Affairs. And we are really excited to have with us Ben Horton, who is the guest editor of the first archive collection on 100 years of UK foreign policy. And he'll be a familiar voice to many of you, as he's also the editor of Undercurrents. Hello, everybody. Ben Horton here from Undercurrents. Yeah, it's so nice to be in the studio and very daunting to be on the other side of the microphone. I'm not used to being the guest. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll be we'll be kind to you. Yeah, please do. Yeah, and thanks thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's awesome to talk about this. So, Ben, could you introduce the archive collection? Yeah, sure. So, um, it was a real honour, I guess, to to be able to go through this project, having worked with international affairs for the last nearly six years and to be involved at some point in the planning for the centenary as well, which is amazing. Basically, this archive collection takes a bit of a deep dive into the 98 volumes of IA that have come out so far and thinks about how the journal has covered the question of UK foreign policy over that time, over 100 years, which have seen absolutely fundamentally massive change, not just for Britain, but also for the world. But, you know, Britain's place in the world, you could say, from 1922 to now has just completely transformed. So to be able to go back into the archive and kind of track how that's changed and how policymakers and academics have reflected on that change, yeah, it was a really fascinating exercise. I've put together a collection which shows how different debates within UK foreign policy have been explored and treated differently over the years. And I sort of thought, as I was reading, that we kept coming back to these kind of four key questions. All of these articles were to some extent engaging with. So the first one, which is really familiar to anybody that's been following the kind of global Britain debate in the last couple of years since Brexit, is about the UK's role in the world. It's something that Chatham House has always worked on. It's something that we're launching a new project to look at this year as well, which is really exciting. But basically thinking through what should Britain stand for in its relations with other countries? What should its priorities be? And what really is the purpose of its foreign policy? 
Then a kind of related question to that is where should the UK act? So where should it pursue those foreign policy goals? And obviously there's like such an interesting kind of change that takes place over the hundred years because in 1922 Britain was arguably pretty much at the height of its imperial power and it had reach truly global reach you know all the cliches about the sun never setting on the British Empire etc and yet gradually as the decades proceed that reach wanes you know and we have all of these questions arising about whether the UK even has the capability to project its power in certain parts of the world and as decolonization continues as a process and as Britain's structural power kind of diminishes you see these debates saying you know what can we even do to protect Singapore for example as we saw in the second world war so this whole question of where should Britain be acting comes up again and again and again and and a corollary to that is this whole question of is Britain a European power or is it a world power or is it a transatlantic power? And you have all of these kind of issues coming up. So that's the second section, where should Britain act? The third section is really about who should be involved in the formation of British foreign policy. And obviously, British foreign policy, I think, in common with a lot of countries, the establishment that decides this is, is quite an elite group of people traditionally, very much, you know, these decisions get made in Whitehall by career civil servants and politicians, and there isn't a particularly inclusive debate about what Britain's foreign policy should be. Voters don't traditionally really care that much about foreign policy, so it's not a big election driver, with a couple of exceptions. So there are a lot of articles in the archive reflecting on that, so who should be implicated in this, and you know, you've got people coming up and saying, well, actually, Parliament should have a greater role in the deciding of foreign policy... There is a massive strand, which is very fascinating for me, for my own research interests, about public opinion and what role that plays in the shaping of UK foreign policy. There's also questions around how the civil service is organised and who should get to decide things within that. And so, yeah, this whole kind of question of where do we get our ideas about foreign policy from is the third section. And then finally, the fourth section, the question kept coming up again and again was about how the actual work of British foreign policy is implemented and kind of governed and held accountable, which is really fascinating. There's a lot of people writing in the journal throughout its history about things like how are we even organising the Foreign Office? How are we training our diplomats? What sort of skills do they need to be able to effectively project Britain's influence and priorities? There's also questions about what do you do when British bureaucrats or those involved with delivering foreign policy overreach, when they think, when they get things wrong, the mistakes that they make, how do you hold people accountable for that? There's a really interesting article that was published recently by... Ruth Blakely and Sam Raphael that's thinking about how we hold British policymakers accountable for complicity in torture around the war on terror, those sorts of things. What happens when British foreign policy goes wrong, basically, and how do we look after that? So, yeah, kind of got what are we doing, where are we doing it, who's doing it, and how do we hold people accountable? And we'll be speaking to Ruth later in the podcast about her article. So which voices have been included and which voices have been ignored? Is that something you really noticed when you were going through the articles? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's something that I think is going to be common throughout all of these archive collections is really documenting that shift 
that the journal has been on in recent years to think about inclusion, diversity, who gets to speak and write in academic publications. For sure, a lot of the archive of British foreign policy content in this journal is written by men of a certain age, of a certain educational background. There's definitely more Oxbridge graduates than there are women in the 350 articles that that I found. <laughs> and I think that 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 does say something for sure quite problematic but well potentially not surprising I I think I would say that it's on a par with what you would expect especially for the first half of the 20th century I think definitely there is a shortage of women's voices which the journal has been doing a lot to try and address in the last few years which is amazing but there was also a really interesting lack I think of, of radical voices as well I think what came across was particularly from the big names There was an almost a kind of consensus, an elite consensus, regardless of whether you were a Labour minister for the colonies or a Conservative minister for the colonies or a Liberal, there was continuity there. And at least outside of the kind of peace movement, which was very prominent in the 1920s at Chatham House, there's not a lot of contradictory voices sort of asking big questions, you know, around, for example, I guess, looking at current debates that persist in the Labour Party about how we engage with the likes of Palestine, how we engage with the question of nuclear deterrence, those sorts of things. Like Those questions are not really being grappled with in any kind of sizable way. There's a lot of assumptions that all of these contributors are making about the way the world is and what Britain should be doing. So I think that was another kind of absence beyond just the purely kind of demographic white maleness. So, Ben, what are the three key things that you learned from editing the archive collection? And what is the one thing that surprised you the most? I mean, that's quite a tricky one. A couple of things that I've learned, which maybe I didn't know before, was uh, I would say the focus on institutions, international institutions, is really interesting and very much a common theme throughout the whole archive, that British foreign policymakers for 100 years and maybe more have been thinking in terms of how we can project influence through institutions like the United Nations, the League of Nations, which, of course, Chatham House was so implicated in the founding of in the 20s. Also, institutions like the Bretton Woods Financial Organisations, NATO, the European Union. That is just such a common thread. And obviously, in the later articles, which you can find in the collection, there are, there are some reflections on the impact that Brexit will have on our kind of reputation within those institutions and our ability to project influence. But something that has been constant throughout is this kind of acceptance that Britain is best placed to engage through diplomatic channels, through these institutions and organisations, rather than just trying to focus on its kind of structural power, which I guess is kind of inevitable as the structural power wanes, you know, as I mentioned earlier. So that's one thing. Another really interesting thing that came out, which I I had sort of encountered a little bit before, but I hadn't really appreciated fully, was um, the role that ideas around identity play in foreign policy. So one article that really kind of clearly hits this identity question is by William Wallace, who in the late 80s and early 90s, I believe, was the director of studies at Chatham House. And he wrote an article in the early 90s that basically set out these two kind of traditions in British foreign policy thought, which was 
basically predicated upon how the policymakers felt about British identity, like whether Britain was primarily an Anglo-Saxon power, which would lead it to engage more with the Commonwealth and more with the United States, or whether the United Kingdom was much more a European power that would lead it towards engagement with the European Union, deeper integration, which obviously was a key question during the 1990s, like how far Britain was going to enter Europe and questions around that brought John Major quite a lot of grief and successive Conservative Prime Ministers since. And that kind of dichotomy between Anglo-Saxon and European identity gets picked up again by an author in the January 2022 issue of IA in an article titled Elite Mass Agreement in British Foreign Policy, which I definitely would recommend people check out. But even before the 90s, those questions like, are we primarily European? Are we primarily Anglo-Saxon? Like You can trace that back all the way pretty much to to inception point. And there's a lot of policymakers writing in the 20s and 30s about the rise of fascism and communism and other big foreign policy questions for the UK and saying we can't get implicated in this because we're a world power. And if we just spend all our time focusing on disruption in Europe and trying to maintain the balance of power there, we're going to miss out on how the world is changing and the big rivals that we have are the United States and Japan and we need to be out there in the world rather than stuck here in Europe. So it's fascinating to see how that sort of echoes. The other thing that I guess was the big surprise for me was this whole kind of focus on the public which I spoke about earlier and I think that's the big thing that I just kind of assumed was not really on the agenda. Largely international affairs, Chatham House, it's foreign policy elites talking to other foreign policy elites about big decisions that don't concern the man on the street. But actually there is this kind of really cool thread of articles throughout the archive that are trying to bring the man on the street into those conversations to some extent or to at least accept the impact that things like public opinion can have on decision makers. And I think that you see that really clearly around decisions that Anthony Eden made in the aftermath of the Suez crisis and and other different points in British history that there are moments where voters really do have quite a lot of influence and rather than it being this kind of cerebral philosophical exercise British foreign policy makers really do clearly understand that that is an influence and that they have to if not listen to them they at least have to manage them so I think that was something that surprised me. Another thing that I learned in this process, something that I hadn't really grappled with much in the past, was how British foreign policy was influenced by decolonisation as a process. And I know we're going to come to decolonisation specifically. It's got its own archive collection that will be out later this year. But it's very interesting to witness the gradual disappearance of the countries that had been British colonies through the journal's coverage. So obviously in the first sort of three or four decades, there was a lot of conversation about how British foreign policy makers should engage with India, how they obviously in the early years, how they should manage India, which is obviously deeply problematic. But, you know, what their relation to India should be, what their relation to sub-Saharan Africa should be, different parts of Southeast Asia as well. They come up all the time in the early years of the journal decolonization comes in as this process and it's very interesting that in the 50s and 60s Chatham House hosted a lot of the kind of independence leaders of these sort of new countries which I guess is surprising but good that their voices were given a platform but in the journal itself 
aside from those kind of new presidents, it just disappears. It falls off a cliff edge in terms of interest in those places. And there is an article in the collection that tries to bring that back in in a really helpful way, which is by Tarek Bakawi and Shane Brighton. But that's in 2013 that they wrote Brown Britain, where they were sort of saying, you know, the future of British grand strategy is to engage with the Commonwealth and diaspora communities that are now here in Britain and trying to sort of leverage colonial inheritances in a more sort of helpful way, in a more sort of constructive way. But that between the 60s and then, there is just this gulf of now we're just going to talk about whether we should be a European power or not. And I should just say as well that, of course, since 2013 and since Bakawi and Brighton wrote that piece, IA has really made an attempt to kind of cover these issues more constructively and in more depth. And the January 2022 special issue of the journal, which focuses all about these kind of ideas of race and imperialism and how that has influenced the discipline of international relations, is a really cool sign that outlets like IA and maybe the wider IR discipline are starting to think about these questions properly. Great. Thanks so much, Ben. It was great speaking to you. Ben's introduction to the archive collection is now available online, free to access, and we'll add a link in the show notes below. So we're lucky to have today in the studio the Right Honourable Lord Wallace of Salter, who is the former Director of Studies at Chatham House between 1978 and 1990, an expert on British foreign policy, taught at universities around Europe and currently serves as a Liberal Democrat peer in the House of Lords. So you're certainly very qualified to be speaking about British foreign policy today and we're thrilled to have you here. So during your time at Chatham House and afterwards, you've written many articles for international affairs. And today we're focusing on the role of identity in British foreign policy. Now, in 1990, you spoke at Chatham House and the speech was later published in the journal under the title Foreign Policy and National Identity in the United Kingdom. This piece has been included in our new archive collection. And in the article, you argue that British politicians were essentially split by their feelings around national identity. They were either Anglo-Saxon or European. So the Anglo-Saxon meaning these kind of more Churchillian ideas of the UK as a kind of independent, strong global power, whereas the Europeans felt themselves more part of the EU, more sort of a collective identity. Can you explain a little bit about how these identities have developed and what that parliamentary split tells us about British foreign policy? Well, I mean, we're talking about what sort of history, particularly English history, uh, we've all grown up with and what the myths and stories have been. David Cameron once told everyone that the My Island Story was his favourite book, a book published in about 1900 by a woman which told the story of how specially blessed England had been and how England was the most liberal, constitutional, evidently leading country in the world. And if that's part of the imperial Britain myth, if you like, um, which is closely linked to the Anglo-Saxon idea. But the other bits of his history feeding into this is the, the Protestant myth, English exceptionalism starting from the Reformation, Henry VIII declaring that this realm of England is an empire different from the continent, which 
very much became a Protestant, implicitly and sometimes explicitly anti-Catholic view of Britain, uh, in which other Protestant countries, the Nordic countries, the Netherlands and Prussian Germany, as well as the Anglo-Saxons across the Atlantic, uh, were part of us, and France, Italy, were part of a corrupt authoritarian Catholic world. That's buried in the old stories. When I first read Charles Kingsley, for example, those sorts of things are deeply embedded in children's literature in the late 19th century. The European dimension, of course, comes from those who felt that Britain was part of European culture, that we shared with German literature, French literature and music and history a whole host of things. It's Pitt saying, no, we are part of Europe. And that rather more Whig interpretation than the rather more imperial interpretation that the Anglo-Saxon became. But they've been there for several hundred years, shifting ground because myths take on extra bits with each generation. So this is really an ancient idea which is filtering through to the way we're talking about national identity today. And so... In the 90s, when you, were, when you were speaking about it, it was still, as you say, very much dividing politicians. So what does that tell us about the way British foreign policy is created? Well, as I said in my, the article and the speech I gave then, you start by a number of assumptions about which countries are most like us and which countries we can most trust. And British foreign policy has always revolved around our relations with France, Germany, the Netherlands and Spain, and then increasingly from the late 19th century onwards, what we now call the White Commonwealth and the United States came to balance that. And the arguments about whether or not we were an imperial country, Britain and the open sea, or a more European country, unavoidably engaged in European affairs, was a tension in the 1890s between those who believed in splendid isolation, as it was called, and those who thought that we had to build alliances in Europe. And, of course, we didn't develop any formal alliances in Europe until after the First World War had broken out. So over 30 years later, Brexit has happened. We're living in a very different world. So do you think your your ideas about national identity guiding foreign policy still hold true today? Sadly, I don't think the argument has moved on at all. One of the things I remember about giving this speech at Chatham House, was that, to my surprise, all the members of a group that Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister had just set up to examine the national history curriculum came and sat in the front row. She had set up this group because she was dissatisfied with what was being taught in British schools and wanted a more patriotic version of history taught. The first thing that the group said to her was that we didn't teach British history. We taught English history in English schools and Scottish history in Scottish schools, and they had no jurisdiction over Scotland. This was news to her. The report they produced was sufficiently well-balanced that she refused to accept it, and there remained confusion over what should be taught. Uh, Michael Gove, only two or three years ago, tried to set up another group to discuss how to teach history in English schools, and that also has not succeeded. So we're stuck with it. 
So you ended your speech saying that Britain needs to reinvent its national identity by taking into account the reality of the UK at that time, rather than looking backwards. Now, the current government, Boris Johnson's government, are using this idea of global Britain a lot. What does the idea of global Britain tell you about you know, the foreign policy making at the moment? Are we, are we looking forward or are we looking backwards? Sadly, I think we're looking backwards. The pitch for the Indo-Pacific has some relevance to the present. The Indo-Pacific has clearly become much more important, but it is a sort of everywhere but Europe. And I remember hearing, when I was in the coalition government, a Secretary of State in the Cabinet talking about a close relationship between Britain and India on the basis that the Indians were so grateful for what we had given them uh, when we governed India. Now, that depth of illusion about how the Indians see the world is astonishing in someone who was in David Cameron's cabinet. Uh, But it's there, partly, and it still remains in what some people think India will welcome uh, a closer relationship with Britain. And the preoccupation with Australia and New Zealand as, as our closest allies rather than France and Belgium and Germany, is remarkable. And it's also based on on denying the extent to which, in both world wars, we were fighting a fundamentally European war, not on our own, but with a lot of European and Commonwealth help. So we said that a lot of the things that you talked about in your article very much remain true today. But is there anything that you'd add in light of Brexit or in light of even perhaps a situation in Ukraine right now, what would you would you add anything about British foreign policy and national identity? I would say that we are very confused, and we're confused now both about the imperial connection and about the European connection. I was on the government's advisory committee for the commemoration of World War One, and my Conservative colleagues resisted making much of the Indian contribution to the First World War. We had no major commemoration in five years of activities of the Indian contribution, which there were one and a half million Indians in the British Army uh, in World War I. And similarly, nothing on the importance of the Belgian army, remnants of which continued to fight with us in Ypres, or the French. And to my total amazement, and this is, in a sense, an argument of how narrow the perception has become. The government also resisted making a great thing of when the Americans came into the war. The only event in a whole series of events to commemorate the centenary of World War I, which commemorated the American contribution, was held in an island off the northwest coast of Scotland, Isla, where an American troop ship had been wrecked in 1918. Somehow or other, the national television did not notice it. After an argument, I won the argument that we should at least have some ceremony to mark the point at which British troops came under French command in April 1918. Again, we had a small ceremony uh, by the statue of Marshal Foch outside Victoria Station, but there was some resistance to the idea that the First World War was anything more than we British beat the Germans. Wow, lots of amnesia there. (laughs) Lots of amnesia. Is there anything you'd like to add? You know, looking forward, what should the British government be doing? Well, I think the British government has got to try to shift concepts of who we are and where we're based 
I've spent some years also arguing that our great annual national ceremony, which is the Cenotaph ceremony, should not be so purely white and national, that we have, after all, forgotten the large number of Poles who served in the Air Force during the Second World War, including some very important contributions to the Battle of Britain, or the Belgians who were in all three services in the Second World War, or, again, the Indians or the Africans or the Caribbeans who served in great numbers, we've forgotten that when South Asian immigration in large numbers began in the 1950s, quite a lot of that was men who had served as officers in the Indian Army in the war calling up their sirdars, getting in touch with them and asking them if they could bring some people over to work the night shift so that some of the Muslim British whom I know well in, in West Yorkshire are the grandchildren of people who fought in the British Army in the Second World War. That's the way we need to reconsider where we came from, where we are now and who we are linked to. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, William. It's been fascinating hearing you talk about a very wide range of British history, which I think we can see is lots has changed and lots has stayed the same. So thank you so much for coming in. Thanks. Hi, I'm Christina Chotea. I'm the Managing Editor of International Affairs. And I'm here with Bruce Blakely, who is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Sheffield. And we are going to talk about her article that was included in our um, centenary archive collection on British foreign policy. So this is an article from 2020 that Ruth co-wrote with Sam Raphael on accountability, denial, and the future proofing of British torture. Bruce, what are the three main points of your article? Thank you, Christina, and thank you very much for the invitation to speak to you. So the article seeks to show the role that the UK played both in torture orchestrated by the CIA, but also the various lengths the UK has gone to to try and deny and cover up its role. So the first part of the article is putting that on the record, showing the extent of UK collusion in torture, and then explaining the processes it went through to deny, to obfuscate, and crucially to halt investigation and accountability. So those are the first two points, really, looking at the evidence of the torture and then what the UK did to try and deny and prevent the public record uh, of its collusion. And then the third and perhaps more important uh, contribution is to show that that's been quite a deliberate effort to try and allow the UK to engage in operations in the future where torture might happen. So even though the UK agencies, security services, intelligence agencies might not themselves be engaging in acts of torture, they're leaving open the door for the UK to work with overseas partners that do engage in those things and they appear to want to allow that to continue. I found it really interesting that you were looking at the security services especially. So from the, the point of view of just doing the research, does it pose extra challenges? I'm thinking maybe in terms of access to documents. Yes, so obviously studying anything that states do in secret has a number of challenges. I think one of the things that helped us is that the, the UK's collusion in CIA torture began in 2001, and we were not really investigating this in depth until 2010, which we then did for the next nine years, and the result was this, this paper we published in International Affairs. The important thing there is it's very slow burn work. 
It takes a very long time to investigate state secrets for reasons that are really obvious. But I guess what helped us is there was a lot of investigation into this. It was a very live issue. There were high-profile investigative journalists at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and in several U European newspapers going at this story like a, a dog with a bone, really, um, really pushing to get the evidence out. They were supported by human rights litigators representing victims because by this point, of course, some of the people who were victims had been released by the CIA and there were various thwarted attempts to, to seek redress and justice. So that did help to bring quite a lot of documentation into the public domain, by no means all. And a key source for us actually was the US Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation published in 2014. When I say published, what I mean is they published a highly redacted executive summary of 500 pages. The 6,000-page report remains classified, and that gives you a sense of the scale of documentation that is not available. But the important thing is that this was an international collaboration of, of Sam and me with very many human rights investigators and litigators, NGOs and journalists who, who shared information and worked together. You also gave evidence to the, the UK's Intelligence and Security Committee into their investigation. So what, what was that like? Did you, did you feel like your research had an impact? It was a fascinating experience. And I think it was quite important that Sam and I thought quite hard about going into that committee with a set of ideas about what we wanted to convey, because they could ask us anything. But of course, we could also give the answers we felt they needed to hear. So we did quite a lot of rehearsing together beforehand about the kinds of things we wanted to try and communicate to the committee. And they were focused on what we thought the extent of Britain's role was. We also actually wanted to try and describe some of the torture. And I think that's that's difficult, but actually quite often people don't really understand what you're talking about if they've never thought about it. So we wanted to be as explicit as, as possible that these actions really are illegal and really are quite harrowing. And then the third thing we wanted to do in giving evidence was to draw the committee's attention to what we see as a really poor framework of training and prevention among intelligence services. We think the guidance and training they're given is poor and we wanted to shine a light on that. So we had an agenda. <laughs> what was very good is that at the time the chair of the committee was Dominic Grieve who had been the Attorney General. He has a background as a barrister in a chambers that has a certain set of commitments to human rights and human rights litigation. So we were at least being, you know, led and questioned by someone with, with real credibility and, and what we felt was a genuine interest in what we had to say. They became quite fixated on our methodology. They were particularly interested in when we'd said in our evidence that a particular prisoner had been renditioned, they wanted to know what degree of confidence we had that they were put on an aircraft on a particular day kidnapped by the CIA, flown to a particular lo location and were tortured. So they were very interested in how confident we were in our conclusions. And so we talked through the process of triangulation, the very high standards we set ourselves about making sure we had multiple sources to corroborate a particular claim we made. And that if we weren't confident, we were explicit about that. But at one point in the interview, they, they pushed on this again. And I remember Sam saying to them, look, short of having photographic evidence of them putting the man on the plane, we're really confident. <laughs> and it was quite a good way to sort of illustrate that there had been some rigour to that research. And I think that did mean that our, our evidence carried weight. 
Now, of course, what then came out in the report they produced, which was, was published in 2019, is that the committee had had access to much more evidence than we had ever dreamed of having. And actually, they corroborated and, in fact, reinforced our findings. And they went further than we'd ever been able to go in showing the extent of British collusion. So, yes, I think that the work did have some impact, mainly because we're so serious about that question of, of confidence. When you're, when you're talking about state secrets and serious violations of human rights, it, accuracy is really, really important, particularly if it's going to be used in litigation, which some of our work has. I think the second thing is that we were really pleased about actually was that in the in the final report they produced, they did spend quite a lot of time talking about the failures of the training and the principles and guidance that are given to intelligence services. And we felt that we'd really had an influence there, which was quite important. And actually, subsequently, we were invited to give further evidence to the review of those principles, which were rewritten. To be honest, I'm not I'm still not happy with them, but, it, you know, certain things were changed. And I think that's that's, again, part of both the rigorous of the research, but also that we do work with this much wider community of human rights activists, NGOs and litigators. And so we're part of a credible group, if you like, that to some degree can have some influence through that, that strength and reputation, really, and quality of, the, of those organisations working together. I believe your evidence was used more recently in a case in the US. Yes. So there was a ruling in the US Supreme Court yesterday which was not the ruling I was hoping for, but I'm not surprised. So this was a case brought by one of the CIA prisoners who's still held in Guantanamo Bay, Abu Zubaydah. And the case was to try and challenge the US's position that the evidence of his torture is not admissible in uh, either his tribunal in Guantanamo or in litigation that's being brought on his behalf in European countries where he was held prisoner. And the US government um, and the successive courts in the US through this process have claimed states' secret privilege. So this means not uh, disclosing things that might put your relationships with other states in jeopardy and so on. And what was really interesting is the Supreme Court ruled against him. I'm not that surprised. You know, for 20 years, the US and the UK have been trying to prevent the evidence from coming out. But there was a dissenting opinion from two judges yesterday. And in that dissenting opinion, the two judges said... It's a matter of fact and record that this man was tortured by the CIA. Books have been written about it. Films have been made about it. There's, there's a wealth of evidence, you know, including primary documents from within. So this is not a matter of, you know, whether this happened or not, it did. And what's really going on here is that the court and the government are systematically trying to ensure that embarrassing secrets about its, its past collusion and torture don't come out. But, but it's already a matter of public record and fact. And I think that's an important dissenting opinion because it puts a nail in the coffin of it, of any argument that tries to say, you know, it never happened, it's been over-egged, it wasn't torture, it was torture light or enhanced interrogation. Um, so although the outcome is, is, is disappointing on some levels, at least there were, there were two judges who were pre prepared to speak up about the, the facts that torture happened and it happened at the hands of the CIA. You mentioned that there's a really committed community of researchers, NGOs, human rights lawyers, they're trying to hold governments accountable. And there are also a number of international legal agreements that ban torture. And despite all of this, it's also very clear from your article that there is a complete lack of accountability. So what do you think needs to change? I think lots of things need to change. I do think that the collusion and the extent of the collusion by states like the UK and the US in a fairly systematic and orchestrated and planned programme of torture 
has really, really undermined their capacity to hold other states to account. It's interesting because the US Senate uh, Intelligence Committee stated that the CIA's use of torture had been, in many ways, a a brilliant propaganda tool for al-Qaeda and ISIS. It had driven individuals into the arms of those organisations because what they see is supposedly liberal democratic states upholding, you know, anti-torture norms with one hand and then doing the exact opposite with the other. And I I think that's been really damaging. And and I do think that um, if the Biden administration could take seriously the need to finally end these sham trials of the Romanian prisoners, there's only a handful of them, could shut down Guantanamo and could say, we're not doing this kind of thing again. We will treat terror suspects according to the rule of law. We will try them in proper courts with evidence that isn't tainted by torture. That would send a really powerful signal about accountability. However, that hasn't happened for two decades, so I'm not entirely hopeful. But I think there are other things we can do. I think we try, as academics, as human rights activists, as interested citizens, we probably have to challenge the ongoing Hollywood fantasy of torture working to secure intelligence. It doesn't. It's a myth. Most torture has nothing to do with gaining real-time intelligence that's going to stop a bomb. It's mostly about coercion, control and trying to prevent political opposition and so on. So I think we need to be be much better at challenging those kind of popular narratives and getting people to really think about what's at stake. There's a lot at stake. Uh, Today's, you know, current news now shows that there's very high risks of human rights violations. They're very likely to happen in the Ukraine crisis. And we've got to have much more robust and international collaboration to try and stop these things from happening. And it does begin with the democratic states coming clean and saying what they've got wrong and and trying to set the record straight and take responsibility for things that they claim they hold dear. I was astonished, actually, when you you quote several British policymakers using the ticking bomb scenario to keep the door open for torture in legislation. It seemed astonishing to me. So... And we have time for one final question. So I'm I'm just curious, is there anything that you would do differently if you were writing the article today? That's a really good question, Christina. And obviously it was published, what, two years ago now, a year ago now, or at least the work was finished two years ago. Since then, one of the things that's been very interesting to me is that more people on the inside have been confident to say that this was not acceptable and that the men who are still languishing in Guantanamo after 20 years of detention, 10 years of systematic torture and a fair amount of human rights violations since then, probably including torture as well, there have been brave individuals who've gone on the record to say this was not acceptable. A really good example is that there was a tribunal against one of the Guantanamo detainees quite recently, back in the autumn, and there was a panel of military judges adjudicating that case. And actually what that prisoner decided to do was uh, not to pursue his case in return for release. But there was still a panel of judges that had to make that decision. And eight of the nine judges, I think it was, actually hand-wrote a note in the middle of this tribunal to say that the CIA's use of torture was a stain on US democracy and this man ought to be released and, and recompensed for what he'd suffered. And that's pretty astonishing. You know, that's the first time from within those tribunals, which are a bit of a sham, that there were some brave military personnel who stood up and said, you know, these were the judges, and they said, no, this was not acceptable. And that got me thinking, actually, about the human toll this has taken for the people who are still caught up in this legal loophole, about 20 of them. 
because what we haven't really talked about is the ways in which them continuing to be held in detention without proper due process, without access to adequate medical care and crucially adequate psychosocial care because they have suffered so much torture means that that is being revisited day in, day out upon them. And so if I wrote the article again, I would want to spend a bit more time drawing people's attention to that really high toll on specific individuals. There's a follow-up article in the works. I'll be looking forward to reading that. Ruth, thank you so much. This was fascinating. Thank you for talking to us. An absolute pleasure, Christina. Thank you. It's been such an interesting experience discussing the archive collection, first with the editor, Ben, and then with two of the contributing authors, really first getting an overview of what's happened in British foreign policy over 100 years and then diving deeper into two specific topics. Yeah, and in some ways it's fascinating to see how things haven't really changed. During my conversation with William, I was really struck by the fact that actually, you know, a lot of these ideas informing our foreign policy today are the same as they were hundreds of years ago and actually our conversation with Ben showed that as well that actually the, the things that British foreign policy is preoccupied with have relatively stayed the same as well. So that, that theme of change and continuity really became apparent to me as well when I was talking to Ruth. So it's clear that in some ways the British government has become much more accountable in the last 50-60 years but Ruth made it clear that's not true of everything, and especially such a crucial issue as policies around torture. So join us next time in this mini-series to explore 100 years of war and conflict. See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.